Well, hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of John. My name is Jonathan Chan. So glad that you can join me today as we embark on chapter 12 of the Gospel of John. Now, before we begin, let us start with a video clip, and we'll be right back. Who do you trust? Someone who gives you what you want, or someone who doesn't? Clearly, in the video clip that I just showed you, taken from the Batman, which was filmed in 1984, I showed you a crowd who trusted in Joker. Why? Because Joker gave them what they wanted—money. Now, if you've seen the movie, in the end of this epi-、uh, scene, it didn't turn out that well for the crowd. We are embarking on a chapter that contains two popular narratives. Jesus being anointed with perfume by Mary, and Jesus entering Jerusalem on a donkey with crowds of people waving and putting palm tree branches on the ground, singing "Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel." You might say, "Wow, this crowd really turned around the corner, right?" For the past eleven chapters, this crowd was unbelieving. They even rejected Jesus, accused Jesus of blasphemy, and was ready to kill Jesus many times. This crowd is now trusting in Jesus. It seems like they're adoring him. They're cheering him on. But you know, when we continue to read this chapter after this entry, we found out, or we will find out, that they really didn't. Believe in Jesus or trust in Him, because Jesus didn't give them what they wanted. So, question for us today, and we'll revisit this question near the end: If Jesus doesn't give us what we want, do we believe Him or trust Him? Let's begin with John setting the stage again with some imagery. John chapter twelve, verse one to eight: Six days before the Passover. Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, He who was about to betray him said, "Why was this anointment, ointment? I said, sorry, ointment, not sold for three hundred denarii and given to the poor?" He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, "Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial." For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Three notable images in this passage that John provides us with: six days to Passover, 
the perfume anointing, and John's efforts in explaining Judas's motives for for scolding Mary. Now, if you look at this passage, he spends a lot of time explaining Judas's motives. So we have to wonder why would he do that. So that's one question, right, to ask. But the other question is, as we've always been doing and always been asking throughout this journey, is where have I seen this before? Where have I seen six days before and where have I seen Passover before? And why is it here? So let's tackle the first one. Six days. For John's readers, including you and I, we know how John started this gospel, right? In chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, which means the Genesis creation story should immediately come to mind in all his readers, including us. The entire book of John is to tell the story of why Jesus came to this world. It is to save all creation, including humanity, make it new, and have the presence of God dwell among them. Now, we have six days, which means the seventh day is Passover. On the seventh day, the final day of the Genesis creation story, God dwelled among creation back in chapter 1 of Genesis. Creation was perfect and holy, and therefore God was able to dwell among creation and humanity. John emphasizes that the Passover now is on the seventh day. Why? Where have we seen Passover before as well? In the Exodus which is an ongoing theme as well throughout the Gospel of John, where God, through the blood of the Lamb, passed over his judgment over Israel, but passed on judgment on Pharaoh and the Egyptians and evil in general, and delivered his people from slavery and separated them again for himself, i.e. holy. So we have the Passover. We have the six days leading to the seventh, which happens to be the Passover. Put them together, what do we have? God, through Jesus, is now nearing the completion of his salvation work. Creation will be made whole and holy again where God can dwell among them. How and why? It's because it's through the Passover lamb, which right now in this gospel, Jesus is the Passover lamb. He's been reiterating that for a few chapters already. And now, here is the Passover lamb, who is Jesus, ready to die, shed his blood for the world, so that God's judgment passes over them. So, what about the anointing of perfume? That's the second phrase that John provides. Who was this perfume reserved for previously? Well, it's Lazarus. He's the one who died, remember, back in the previous chapter, and Jesus brought him back to life, right? It was just the previous chapter that Lazarus was dead. And boy, (laughs) he smelled. Um, This dead body was so smelly and overbearing that even the perfume couldn't hide it. So we know that the perfume that Mary is using was for the burial preparations of Lazarus. And now what do we have here? Mary, using the same perfume reserved for Lazarus, is now using it on Jesus' feet. It appears in the passage through Jesus' response to Judas that Mary does believe that Jesus' purpose on earth is to die for humanity, while the disciples and everyone else, for some odd reason, 
remain clueless. Why are they clueless? With all these imageries, with all the signs, with all the uh, implications of the six days and the Passover and what Jesus has been saying throughout the previous 11 chapters, why is it that the disciples and everyone else remain clueless except for Mary? Well, we will get to know the answer as we explore this chapter. But right now, John gives us a hint through his explanation of Judas's motives. John said that deep down in Judas's heart, he was a lying thief that sto- who stole money from the ministry's treasury for his own use. So when Judas scolded Mary that she should have sold the perfume and put the money into the treasury to help the poor, well, he basically wanted to steal the proceeds from the sale to use for himself. He didn't care about the significance of why Mary anointed Jesus' feet with perfume. He didn't care about the poor. All he cared about was himself and how he profited it from following Jesus. Jesus was his source of revenue. Jesus was his divine butler to do what he wanted. Does this theme of wanting Jesus to do what you want play through the rest of this chapter? Let's see. Verse 9. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Oh no! The chief priests are losing their church members and jealous of Jesus. Why? Why would they be so angry at Jesus and Lazarus? Because Jesus is taking away their revenue stream, church members. He's taking away their donors. He's taking away their sponsors. And these chief priests are powerless to stop Jesus from taking them because these people were amazed at what Jesus did. He raised Lazarus from the dead. Who does that? Jesus did something that the crowd wanted. A miracle power move from a superhero. And they believed in Jesus. Jesus didn't do what the chief priest wanted, i.e. to be their puppet and pat them on the back. They actually wanted Jesus to do that. Remember Nicodemus? Nope. Jesus, in fact, pointed out their sin in public, revealed their selfishness, and told them that he's the true shepherd, not them. Hence, they wanted to kill both Jesus and Lazarus. Because, hey, Jesus is not doing what they want him to do, but rather, Jesus is doing the exact opposite. So, we now know that the chief priests are pretty much not good people. They wanted Jesus to do what they want. But how about the crowd? Because it seemed like this whole entrance with the crowd, waving the palm trees and everything, and singing Hosanna, you think that the crowd has turned around the corner, and they're realizing and believing in Jesus, right? Well, John said that they believed in Jesus, but what did they believe about Jesus was not the right thing. Let's take a look in verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel! 
And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. Just a little note here. Right after the crowd said, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it after they yelled out those words. Remember that. Just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. Why would Jesus take a young donkey after when the crowd is yelling, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord? They didn't understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him, though, was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the entire world has gone after him. It's interesting what the Pharisees said without knowing what they really said. The world has gone after him. We'll revisit this as we continue on discussing this chapter. All right. John again offers some notable images for us to ponder. Palm branches, a popular hymn sung during the Feast of Dedication and Tabernacles, i.e. Psalm 118, that's where they got the Hosanna thing, and the donkey. Oh, just a note, the Feast of Dedication and Tabernacles just finished. Hence, they these people had access to these palm branches because the palm branches were used during the Feast of Dedication and Tabernacles, and therefore they're readily available for them to put the palm branches down. So I put a picture up here of a Roman coin, all right? As you see here, you notice that the Roman Caesars on these coins held palm branches in their hands. Why did they do that? Well, palm branches is a way to show their authority, and many royal processions and battle victory parades included palm branches. So whether it be the Caesars, whether it be any other foreign authority, palm, branch, palm branches were used to celebrate their victory parades, and also it's the crowd's way to tell the king, or whoever's the ruler now, that, hey, don't beat us up, don't hurt us, we are, we are with you. And so, please help us help you. Okay. During the Feast of Dedication, as I mentioned, palm branches were used as well. When the Maccabees defeated the Seleucids and retook the temple after the defeat of Antiochus IV of Epiphanes, the guy we, we visited uh, previously in the previous chapter, a palm tree procession was given to the victors heading to the temple to cleanse it and rededicate it back to God and his people for worship. These were the Maccabees. They were, as the Maccabees were entering and slowly coming towards the temple, people were saying Hosanna as well and putting palm trees on the ground to celebrate the victors as they came into the temple to clean it. They sung Psalm 118 to cheer on the victors saying, God, save us. So, Let's put it all together. If palm trees carried that meaning of military victory and coupled with the singing of Psalm 118, which was used as a military victory procession song, what did the crowd really believe Jesus to be? Captain America. Now, for those of you who don't know the, the movie series of the Avengers or the Captain America series, 
Let's just say that these people saw Jesus as a superhero. So just picture your favorite superhero. That's who they thought Jesus was. This superhero was to defeat Thanos, who is the Roman Empire. The Captain America is their eternal king of David's line to lead them and destroy Thanos and free them from Thanos' grip and tyranny. And once again, build a kingdom for Israel, kingdom for the Jews, with an everlasting king of David on the throne. They wanted Jesus to be their Captain America or superhero to reestablish a kingdom where only Jews reside. Unfortunately, instead of doing the royal thing of waving, high-fiving the crowd, what does Jesus do? Instead of riding on a victory horse like his predecessors, right after the crowd sang these things and sang Hosanna, he chose a tiny young donkey to show the crowd and the disciples. What? A tiny young donkey? No one, not even the disciples, understood it as John mentioned. Why would Jesus ride on a young, tiny donkey? Because in their minds, that imagery is found in Zechariah 9.9, which was reserved for God's kingly servant. But this kingly servant had to shed his blood to save Israel. Now, they're thinking and wondering, Is Jesus going to die then? Never! Captain America can't die. He's our superhero. Heroes are immortal. They cannot die in the hands of the enemy. Hence, the disciples and the crowd didn't get it until Jesus' death and resurrection, i.e. his glory. The reason the crowd is doing what they're doing, i.e. putting the palm trees down and singing these songs, is because of what Jesus did, right? Was raising Lazarus from the dead. That's an amazing feat, a sign of power and superhero strength. But for the Jews, it was also a sign of God's power and God's presence on Jesus. And and using their own references and Old Testament references, when someone has God's power and presence upon them, usually that person is a king of royal descent. All their kings, the good ones anyway, in in the history of Israel, had God's power and presence upon them. All the good judges had God's power and presence on them. So, in their mind, using the Old Testament references, they think and they wanted and they desired Jesus to be their superhero king. They said that, hey, God is with this guy. He clearly has his superpower strength. So, he got to be our king. The Jews will again have their kingdom. And everyone who is not a Jew, especially the Romans, will need to submit to them. However, Jesus chose a little donkey, a Zechariah 9-9 imagery type of donkey. So they're a little confused. Jesus on a donkey? Why is he associating himself with a humble servant, kingly servant, who will shed blood to save Israel? Hmm. Let's go on. Verse 20. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Now, let's just back up. The Greeks in the Greek, in ancient Greek, is usually encompasses all non-Jews. 
i.e. Gentiles. So the best way to translate this is the feast were some Gentiles. And these Gentiles came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. All right, more imagery provided by John. Greeks, which are Gentiles, and the hour has come, and the last statement from Jesus. Okay, let's look at Greeks first. As I was saying, Greeks which should be treated as Gentiles. Wait, aren't these the ones who the Jews really, really disliked and wanted to annihilate? They're the ones who the Jews wanted Jesus as the king to take them into battle and annihilate these Gentiles, right? Because a lot of these Greeks were Romans. They're Gentiles, foreigners. Romans, they are here because they're drawn to Jesus, right? I.e., not just the Jews are drawn to Jesus, but the entire world is now drawn to Jesus, which the Pharisees inadvertently and I bet unintentionally mentioned uh, previously. The whole entire world is now drawn to Jesus. That's what it, that's what's so symbolic of the Gentiles coming to Jesus is because now. Even the Gentiles, the foreigners, the entire world is coming to see Jesus. And when Jesus saw this, what did he say? The hour has finally come. Recall the previous chapters, 11 chapters, that throughout the previous chapters, Jesus said that his hour has not come. But now, with the presence of Gentiles, he says his hour has finally come. When the rest of the world is now here, he knows that his death on the cross is imminent because he is doing what Israel was supposed to do, i.e. be the light to the world and draw the world to God. The Jews failed, if you recall. So Jesus is now taking upon himself this role, seeing that he is now the light to all nations, where the world is now drawing to himself. He now knows that his time on the cross is imminent. They want Jesus the disciples and the Jews, they didn't get it, right? They were thinking that Jesus was mainly for themselves. They wanted Jesus to be their Captain America and save them from whatever they want to be saved and give them what they want. Jesus, knowing their hearts now, says that's not going to happen. They need to, hence the last phrase of Jesus, they need to give up their lives and submit to God's authority. Now, it may be to the cross, some disciples did end up on the cross like Peter. It may be other ways of submitting to God. But Jesus, knowing their hearts, says, If you think I'm here to do what you want and save the things you want saved, you're wrong. I'm here to show you the way, and that is to submit your life to God and obey him and bring him glory. All right. This came right after the triumphal entry that many people have now titled it triumphal entry. For Jesus to say that, to tell them, the crowd who was just cheering them on, cheering him on just, re just not too long ago, for Jesus to say, I'm not here to do what you think I'm here to do. 
I'm here to tell you that you need to submit to me and follow me to the cross. That's a big ouch, isn't it? That sure dampened that whole parade, right? That sure dampened the whole triumphal entry motif, right? Because that's what they wanted. They wanted Jesus to save them from whatever they want to be saved. But Jesus said, nah, I'm not here to save what you want to be saved. And I'm not here to do what you want. I'm here to submit to God's authority, God's will. And I'm here to tell you and show you how to do it to the cross. All right, let's go on. Verse 27, Jesus says this, Now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, i.e. the cross, will draw all people to myself. He said, to this, he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Recall what the crowd sang. Hosanna! I.e. God, save me! We don't know what each person in the crowd wanted Jesus to save them from, right? But here, Jesus, deep down, didn't want to go through with the cross. And rhetorically, he asked the crowd, Look, I'm going to suffer and die because I'm obeying God. Would I, like you, ask the Father to save me from it? No, because my obedience is to, it will glorify his name. Let's blast to today. This is a very hard thing to do even today, right? When the Holy Spirit tugs us to go against the grain for the sake of obeying Jesus and following him, it'll cause us to incur a lot of wounds from slivers, right? Using that same imagery of going against the grain. It will bring hardship, suffering, ostracization, and a whole lot of inconvenience, right? Uh, it might even limit your career opportunities and career options if you say that you are Christian and following Jesus. It's hard to follow Jesus and obey God to, and for the purpose of giving God glory. Yet ultimately, our purpose here on earth is to glorify God through our obedience and submission to him because we believe that there is something much more beyond what it is here today. We believe, just as Jesus believed, that there is eternal life that is way better in the presence of God. No wonder, though, okay, that Jesus' soul was troubled when he gave a rhetorical dialogue with the crowd, right? No wonder Jesus' soul was troubled because he's giving us the human side of what it is like to obey God. Our souls would be too troubled. Our human intuition and reasoning constantly collides against obeying and submitting to God. It's not easy, right? Sometimes God tells us to do things that are totally unreasonable and irrational at that moment. Yet obeying God is, it is irrational and not easy. It's hard. But we follow Jesus and we know that God empowered Jesus to do it and therefore he will empower us to do it because we keep our eyes focused on something beyond what it is today, something beyond, the eternal beyond, with being in the presence of God. Okay, let's move on. Verse 34. So the crowd answered him, 
We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. When Jesus said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. This is a classic example of us reading our Bibles with a lens clouded with our desires of what we wanted to say, right? We read a Bible verse, but then we're already clouded with our desires and wants, so we kind of manipulate it so that it sounds the way we want it to say. The crowd, already convinced that they want a Captain America out of Jesus to be the eternal Captain America that will not die. They cannot fathom to hear Jesus say that he will die a gruesome death in the hands of their enemies. Hence, this whole Zechariah 9-9 imagery just skipped out of their minds. They didn't get it because they didn't want to hear it or see it. And so, what do they do? They throw scripture at Jesus, trying to justify their position. They quoted verses that say that Christ can't die. They can't fathom that Jesus will die soon, and so they're questioning what Jesus is talking about. They even question what the definition of the Son of Man was. Jesus responds and revisits his previous statements about himself during the Feast of Tabernacles, notably light. Believe in Jesus, and you will know and understand why he's doing what he's doing. Believe and walk in the light. Get rid of your preconceptions and trying to fit Jesus into your agendas, Jesus is telling them. That's what the Pharisees, temple priests, and teachers of the law are doing. And so don't do what they're doing, because if you do what they're doing, you're blind and in the darkness. Believe in Jesus so that you can walk in the light, understand why these things are happening, and find salvation. Let's move on to verse 37. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Now this is the crowd. This is the same crowd that sang Hosanna, Hosanna, right? This is the same crowd. Yet, they still did not believe in him. Why? Well, we explored that already because Jesus did not give what they wanted. Verse 38, So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has, who has believed what he, had, what he heard from us, as to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? That was a tough passage. Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. Why? So that they would not be put out of the synagogue. Why again? For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Hmm. All right, let's uh, take a look at the story of Isaiah really briefly because John quoted it, not Jesus. John quoted it. After the fact, right, after the death and resurrection of Jesus, he did some reflection and he revisited this scenario and he suddenly made a connection. Well, he not suddenly. He made a connection between Isaiah and this scenario that we have here of the Jews and the crowd being unbelieving. So let's take a look at Isaiah really briefly. The whole idea of Isaiah is basically God telling the Israelites, believe me, trust and obey me. But Israelites, if you don't, there will be judgment. But what in what form though? God will judge Israel by allowing them to continue to be stubborn, to be prideful, to be self-righteous and selfish, 
and allow them to have to continue on with that until they become so callous that they cannot receive God's instruction. They cannot hear God's voice. They cannot believe in God's promises. In other words, it's almost like allowing your ears to accumulate way too much earwax so that it's so much caked on in your ears that you cannot hear anything. Just picture the pride, the selfishness, the stubbornness, the rebellion as the earwax. It's disgusting, but I think it's an appropriate metaphor anyway. Okay, so the judgment is not necessarily God dishing out the judgment. The judgment that God executes is basically allowing them to continue in their stubbornness ways and become callous, or in my imagery that I like, be more earwax being caked on into the ears. Let's blast back to this passage we just read in John. Jesus didn't quote Isaiah, but John, right? After much reflection and witnessing Jesus' death and resurrection. He includes Isaiah because he's saying, do you know why the Jews right now in Jesus' time not believing in Jesus and not trusting in Jesus, but rather they are rejecting him again continuously? Well, here's why. God, like in Isaiah, is executing judgment on them. In other words, he is, God is allowing them, allowing their stubbornness and pride and self-righteousness to kick more earwax in their ears. And because of so much earwax, they cannot hear Jesus nor believe in him. So when the entry of Jesus came in, when Jesus entered into Jerusalem on a young donkey, that allusion to Zechariah is more about the judgment on Israel. The judgment on Israel, but also the invitation to the world to be part of God's people now. And his death on the cross not only provided life for those who believe, but also judgment for those who don't. So, what is true belief? What is believing in Jesus truly? Well, it's definitely not the crowd, as John explained. Where the crowds and the authorities believed, they were still not willing to give all, give them, give all of themselves to Jesus. What were they really worried about? They were worried about public perception. They were worried about being kicked out of the synagogue. They were worried about their lives. They were worried about their glory, that they will lose their PR, their glory, but most importantly, their lives. Because as we visited, if you are kicked out of the synagogue, your livelihood is at stake. And so this crowd and the authorities, even though they had an inkling of belief, they still feared for their lives. And that's not what Jesus, believing in Jesus, is. Jesus said you must lose your life in order to save it. And they were not willing to lose their life. So hence, judgment is now upon them as prophesied by Isaiah. They continue to be more worried about their lives. And as they continue to worry, they have more earwax kicked into their ears and unable to believe and listen to Jesus. All right, lastly, verse 44. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, 
but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. As we already mentioned earlier about Isaiah, because of the crowds and the authorities' beliefs about who they want Jesus to be, their stubbornness, pride, and selfishness, all of that led them into judgment. Jesus says, follow him. He's the light that will lead them out of darkness and into eternal life and avoid the judgment. The judgment would pass over them. Follow him in submitting their lives, their wants and desires to the Father, just like he will and just like he did. Follow him in dying to ourselves and picking up our own crosses and judgment will pass over. Follow him and see the light. Yet the authorities, the crowds, the disciples at this moment, at this moment in juncture, all wanted Jesus to do something for them as opposed to following him. Rather than believing and submitting their lives to them, they wanted Jesus to accessorize and save what they want him to save. And hence, they're still in darkness and won't find eternal life. And worse, because they've become so callous, they can't even accept Jesus' words. They even miss them. Some of the obvious ones too. How about us today? When we came to Jesus and said, yes, I will follow you, what did you want from him? Did you know what you signed up for? Did I know what I signed up for? Did we know that we were to submit our lives, die to ourselves, and pick up the cross and follow him? Or was Jesus merely fire insurance for us to make sure that we don't go to hell? Um, did you know or did we know what was required of us to trust and obey Jesus? Did we know that following Jesus was not about getting a pat on the back, being a good law-abiding citizen, and replenishing our self-esteem when we require it, but more about making Jesus our Lord, our King, and, our, and not just our mere Savior. Like, sometimes we see Jesus and believe in Jesus just for the sake of just getting out of guilt trips, saying, oh, I'm forgiven now, and then let's move on. But that's not who Jesus is. That's not how he explained himself to be. He is here as God himself. He is the Lord, our Father, our King. So therefore, he requires us to submit our lives to him, to submit our desires, our wants to him, to make, ensure that what we do and where we go and how we think is in obedience and submission to him. For that will bring God glory. That's why we're here. And when we do and why we do it, and it's because we have something even bigger in, uh, in mind, a bigger goal in mind, and it's that is to spend eternity in God's presence. For what is here on earth does not compare to what is coming up for us in eternity. However, we sometimes get bogged down with life. We sometimes worry about sustaining life, just like the crowd and like the authorities. We sometimes are afraid to reveal who we truly are in front of the public i.e. Christ's followers. But I think that's what Jesus requires us to do. The smallest inkling thing to do. We, are, we may not be all heading to our own crosses and be crucified literally. Thank God, because Jesus did that already and Jesus fulfilled that. But we each will have our own challenges that God requires us to face in obedience to him. When his Holy Spirit tells us to go against the grain, we must submit to him and take on that challenge. And he promises us that when we do, 
he will be with us just as he did with his own son to the cross, Jesus.